listeners, welcome to the AC Podcast. My name is Troy, and I am your host for today's episode. Today, I'm actually going to be sitting down with Andy and Wes as we are responding to two questions we actually received from a friend of a friend of a friend. Here on the AC Podcast, we often will get emails with questions or responses to something that's going on, whether it's a biblical question or something in culture or something directly impacting this individual. And so every now and again, we get the opportunity to actually speak on it on the podcast. And so that is what we're going to do today. We're going to be looking at two questions. One, why does God allow evil? This person was specifically asking about the Epicurean paradox. The second question is in regards to the destiny of the unevangelized. I think many people in one way or another have either discussed or thought about what does God do with the people that are in these remote areas of the world that may never read a Bible, may never attend a church, or don't have anyone to directly evangelize to them? Will God send them to hell? Is hell a fair punishment? If our sins are finite, then why on earth is there an infinite punishment? We're going to get into that right away, but I got to remind you, the Leadership Summit is coming up at the end of this month, October 27th to the 29th. Applications are already coming in and we're so excited. So if you are someone around the age of 19 to 30, we invite you to apply. Spots are filling up and they will be limited. So we don't want you to miss out. Head to apologeticscanada.com slash leadership dash summit dash BC forward slash. That's right. I, I know it very specifically because I've had to do it a number of times. But I want to see you there. It's a great time of equipping and networking young Christian professionals and Christian thought leaders. So that's all for me. I'm going to get out of the way. Go sign up. Enjoy the podcast. Hello, listeners. Welcome to the AC Podcast. My name is Troy, and I am here today with Wes and Andy. Gentlemen, how are we doing today? I'm doing good, but I know Wes is tired. Wes my, is tired. Uh, my infant daughter was up quite a bit last night, so uh, we, uh, you know, she wanted to party at 4 a.m., so some people <laughs> just want to party at 4 a.m. <laughs> it's the best it time It is funny, I've though. Heard. You take the, I, the baby's, like, making noise in the crib. You take her out, and I went, and I, like, lay down with her on our, our couch just to, like, get her out of the room so that Melissa um, could get some rest. And she's, like, popping her head up. She's, like, bopping me on the nose. She's, like, ah, it's part-time, Dad. No. It's 4 no. a.m. Sleeping you guys time. Ever, do you guys ever see, like, where you watch on the news, something crazy happened, and then you read about it, and then... You read in the story that, yeah, they were out walking along the street or hanging out at 4 a.m. And lo and behold, like nothing good happens at 4 a.m. You should be sleeping at 4 a.m. Yeah. There, yeah. There's nothing there's nothing you needed to do at 4 a.m. <laughs> I don't care about your 7-Eleven craving. There was no need for that at 4 a.m. There's, uh, I feel like there's a dividing marker when it turns to five. It's like, okay, if you're up at five, you're like an early riser. You're yeah, getting stuff yeah. done. If you're up at four, it's like, did you go to bed? Did, <laughs> you shouldn't. You might you shouldn't need be to up see right somebody. Now. You should yeah. be up right now. Hey, oh, we should say uh, before we get into things, uh, Troy, uh, we've been busy here at at uh, at AC. Man, you guys, uh, Wes, you're in Saskatchewan uh, with Steve. Uh, Troy, you're out on the island. Mm -hmm. I was in Winnipeg, which was actually balmy. It was beautiful out there. A balmy day in Winnipeg, which you don't normally hear together. <laughs> I, I know. I, last time I was there was in January, and I'm telling you, that was a very different experience. Absolutely. It'll change you. It'll change you. <laughs> they, they quite literally have billboards um, 
when you're going towards more the the north end of Winnipeg, it'll have it'll say Winnipeg tough and it's like selling like wi- like winter equipment it's got this guy in a huge hazmat mask looking thing like he's about to go walk out onto the tundra and i'm like honestly some days you need that <laughs> some days uh also one other thing before we get started uh just a shameless plug um we got uh leadership summit coming up we absolutely do october 27th to the 29th we are inviting young Christian leaders who want to learn what it means to be a thought leader uh, to join us for a time out at a property, a beautiful, beautiful resort in Sasquatch Mountain. It's called the Green Giant for a reason. I honestly recommend you go look it up. It is it is a green giant. It's this amazing, amazing property. And quite literally, we're going to have a time of networking and, and, and equipping just in the realm of leadership, what it means to be a Christian thought leader. And some of you are wondering, what is that? Well, Head to www.apologeticscanada.com leadership-summit-bc forward slash. I've said this a few times, so I've, I've got it down. <laughs> um, and uh, we hope to see you guys there. It's going to be really good. Um, but we're going to jump into today's episode. I always say we're going to jump when we definitely have done a long intro, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with it. We're going to now get into this week's episode. We're going to slide into today's It's a very slow slide. Like, there's not a lot of water on it. You're going to get a rug burn or whatever. But uh, (laughs) we're we're in it now, guys. On today's episode, we are actually going to be fielding a, a few questions. Now, at AC, whether we're doing an event or sometimes previously on the podcast, we'll have people ask us questions. But one thing we are used to is doing Q&A having people just ask questions and we field uh, an educated answer, um, our opinion on things. And we're going to do that today. I was actually sent an email from a friend, from a friend. So it eventually worked its way to me. And they were asking some pretty good questions just about really in the things that we bring that come up in apologetics all the time. So the way we're going to do this is I'm going to ask Andy to answer one of them, and then Wes will answer the other. And they're just going to have a bit of a time of dialoguing, much like what we would do if we were in a live forum. So here's the questions that we got. One, why does God allow evil? They were asking about the Epicurean paradox. So that's question one. Question number two is dealing with the destiny of the unevangelized. What do we do about the people that have never heard the gospel in the villages? Will God still, villages and remote places, will God still send them to hell if they've never had the opportunity to read a Bible? So we're going to start with number one. If you are listening to this podcast and you are the person who sent these questions in, thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Number one, is God all powerful? Is God all seeing? Is God all good? This is the Epicurean paradox, and among other things, it is something that blank and I have been discussing recently. The paradox rests on the assumption that evil exists. Since evil is believed to be alive and well, is God simply ignorant to its existence? If God knew that evil exists, would a benevolent God not wipe clean the dirt? Perhaps God is simply not strong enough to defeat evil. In any case, no good God who knows evil exists and has the strength to stop it would let, would let it run rampant. In which case, why call, it, why call it God if it does not have all three pillars of quality a good God should? Omnipotence, love, and power. As you said, Troy, you know, thank you for sending in the, the question. 
I should say that as of recent, we have received a lot of people that have written us in uh, with questions. And Mm -hmm. clearly, we can't respond to all of them. So forgive us if you've written in a question and we haven't been able to address it. But we get this one uh, a lot. And so I think it's important that we constantly uh, come back to it. And before I get into just, you know, answering this and, and talk and we talk about it, I also think it's just important that in our churches and in our communities that we have the opportunity to ask these important questions of life and yeah. to be able to dialogue on them together. And in fact, some of you know that I run a, a thing at our church called Questioning Christianity, where people mm-hmm. are welcome to just come and question and to to ask the to ask those those hard questions. And I am a big believer that when you ask questions and you begin to dialogue on these, that is a great way to grow your faith. So if you're like, man, I want to grow in my faith, well, get honest about the doubts that you have and the questions you have and, and, and dig into those. And, and so things like this is an important way to, to talk about that. Because one of the things that's encouraged me, and I know it's encouraged you guys is, as I have looked into these big questions, I have found great answers in the Christian worldview. And we have such a robust intellectual tradition of deep thinkers that I'm, I'm, I'm just happy to be a part of. Mm-hmm. With regards to this question, this is a question that Christians have been thinking about for a long time, this Epicurean paradox, or what we would call a dilemma. And the dilemma that Epicurus is, is posing is, is, a, is a significant dilemma. He, he's basically saying, if God is all-powerful, then he should be able to deal with evil. If God is all-wise, he should know how to do that. And if God is all-loving, he should want to do that. But, and this is, I think, really key, and as, the, as this uh, individual wrote in there, evil's here. We live mm-hmm. in a world full of evil. And yet, uh, we're supposed to believe in an all-powerful, all-wise, all-loving God. It creates this paradox where you're like, well, there, there shouldn't be evil then. Mm-hmm. Now, this is uh, something, th- you know, this question about, about evil and uh, and about why an all powerful all wise all good or loving god would allow it uh is something that we deal with at both a head level and a heart level and so mm. i'm just going to quickly address it from those those two perspectives and then we're going to dialogue about about this together just real quick who is epicurus for I was going to say our listeners, but for this guy, for this listener, <laughs> who is Epicurus? Yeah, Epicurus is just uh, an ancient Greek philosopher. So this isn't like some some guy uh, that's writing in the news today. Uh, <laughs> Epicurus is is just one of the one of the ancient Greek thinkers, and this is and and that's actually just even important to appreciate is that this is a question that people have been asking for a really long time. For millennia. He's uh, epicurious. He's not just normal curious. He's epicurious. That's right? wild, man. We get it. You, you. <laughs> I'll mute myself again. Thank you yeah, very you much. See yourself out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that's a dad joke of a whole nother level. Thank that's you. That's a tired Will. dad joke. Yeah, that's a, sure. yeah, that's a four. I got up at 4 a.m. dad joke. Okay. <laughs> so uh, if we're going to deal with this from a, just like, let's just deal with it from a head perspective just to begin with. So intellectually, do we have a dilemma? Um, first of all. And so what philosophers have, have said with regards to is this a dilemma is, is simply to say 
first of all, that logically speaking, uh, that this doesn't necessarily need to be a dilemma. And to demonstrate that it's not a logical contradiction or that it's not a dilemma, what you need to do is demonstrate that there is a possible answer. And I, and I want to just highlight this because I find that a lot of people get confused here. I'm not saying that this is the answer. All I'm saying is that it's a possible answer. And by demonstrating that it's a possible answer, you're, you're showing that you do not have a logical contradiction. And so this is why people will pose the idea that um, God could have good reasons for allowing evil. So in other words, an all-powerful, all-wise, all-loving God could have good reasons for allowing evil and still be God. Mm. And and because what, what Epicurus is getting at here is that if that's not the case, then you're either going to have to compromise on one of God's attributes, his power, right, wisdom, or love, and then he's no longer God. Yeah. Or, you know, God just just doesn't exist. But now this becomes problematic, by the way, because now what we're saying is there is a world that is full of evil, and we believe that, but now we don't believe in God because of that evil. And this becomes another intellectual challenge here, and that is, well, in what sense then can you say that something's evil? When we're mm-hmm. talking in moral categories of good and evil, we're talking about relationships between persons. And by saying that something is evil, we're saying that that is wrong or incorrect, that the world ought not be that way. But if you think that there's a way that the world shouldn't be, it means that you are also convinced there's a way the world should be, right? Yeah. Now that and there's where does like, that morality come from? Exactly, Troy. Where does that morality come from? And it can't come from us. This is where it becomes problematic, because if it comes from us, well, which one of us? Troy's morality, Wes's morality, my morality— or any other of a billion different moralities? Or is there a morality that is actually above all of people that is binding on all of us, which in fact is what we believe? Uh, and we, we see that in the way that we work out our, our laws, for example, that we believe that these laws are binding on all people. Yeah. And so you need some way of, of grounding that. So ultimately, by the way, what we would say then, in particularly within Christian theology, is that you have two different things. You have what's referred to as a theodicy and what's referred to as a defense. So a defense is simply saying, well, I can demonstrate that this isn't a contradiction because there could be good reasons for God to allow evil, and that could be, say, the free will defense, that uh, God's desire is for people to be in relationship with one another. That requires mm. free will. And thus, God did not desire an evil world, but it was a possibility by creating free people to live in loving relationships with one another. They had the ability to choose not to love. Mm. So that's referred to as a defense. Whereas a theodicy is saying, I believe this is the answer. And for many people, the free will defense is more than just a defense. They believe it is the answer. Where I come down is I think the free will defense is a good answer, uh, not only to show it's not a contradiction, but it seems to align in many ways with the Bible, uh, because the, the Bible is all about creating people to be in relationship with God and one another, and for pe- that people chose otherwise and ushered into a good world, a broken world. 
But honestly, I would say that although I think it's a good answer and it, and it fits with the biblical uh, narrative, uh, we're going to need an audience with the Lord to understand all that's going on with regards to suffering and evil. And so then I'll just bring up this last point before we dialogue on this together, and that would be that there's the heart level with regards to the question of not only do we need to ask why does God allow evil, but we have to ask something much more profound. And I think maybe you guys have heard me tell a story where I was speaking at a prison, and it was at a maximum security prison. One of the inmates, while I was giving a talk, stood up, staring at the ground, didn't even make eye contact with me. And and his question was this, uh, why did God allow me to kill three people? And then uh, he sat down. And uh, I remember distinctly love those moments. Yeah, right. Huh? How many? How, <laughs> sorry, excuse me, Mr. Security Guard. Could you come over real quick? Sorry. How yeah. many did you? <laughs> By the way, when you go into a maximum security prison, they give you a button to press if anything goes wrong. And I was, I was like very aware <laughs> of this button. And I was also was thinking to myself, one of those staples that yes was easy this? buttons. Is that what it was? Yeah. Is that big? <laughs> that, that was easy. easy. Just a quick shank to the side. <laughs> Sorry. But I, I thought I actually really appreciated the question because I was like, that's the right question. Mm-hmm. We always want to put it back on God and say, God, why did you allow evil? But here this inmate was actually asking the real question. It's why does God allow me to do evil? Mm, I'm yeah. the one who who does the evil. I'm the one in the broken world doing the breaking. Yeah. And and so this is this from a Christian perspective is really at the heart of of what's going on here is to appreciate my own culpability and what's yeah. going to, to, you know, what is God going to do in light of that? So I'll stop there because that's going to be a great segue as we jump into uh, Wes's question in a moment. But what what are your guys' thoughts with regards to how uh, I would just briefly here answer that question? I think that's a, a really good way of putting it. I once saw this cartoon. Now that I think about it, I think it was two snails talking to each other, which I don't know why they chose that. But Dude, um, are you good? It was uh, like, an artistic rendering. But the one snail was saying, you know, when I, when I die and I go to heaven, I want to ask God why I allowed so much evil in the world. And the other snail says, uh, I'd ask that question, but I'm scared he would ask me the same one back. Hey. Um. So once again, why snails? Not sure, but I, that's what I remember it being. Um, but I, I think that's a that's a good way of putting it. Uh, you know, we're we're often worried about the evil out there in the world that's causing problems for other people in other situations. We we're often we downplay the evil that's in our hearts, and that that's a that's a true problem that I think we can overlook. Is if God solved the problem of evil. Tonight at uh, eleven fifty nine p.m., where would you be at midnight? Well, I mean, we don't want to admit that we're part of the problem of evil; that our hearts are deceitful, among all things, above all things. But I, I think that's a reality that we need to come to terms with: is that actually it's it's God's grace and mercy that He's even letting us stick around for as long as we do. Yeah. Yeah, I've definitely wrestled with these these conversations. I mean, I, I just the, even the topics we're just covering today just remind me of the halls of Bible College. You know, the those late night conversations at four a.m. with, <laughs> with nobody uh, should with be a, awake at four a.m. No We've one should be awake, <laughs> right? Having these deep conversations, but I always there was just always something that I was able to settle in my heart 
that said, man, we really serve a gracious God who actually wanted relationship. It makes me understand songs like when people use wording like your love was reckless. Now, I know God has, knows what he's doing, but there is an aspect of it from a human's understanding of it because of how we look at love and how we look at as a father, giving your kid an opportunity to fail. But it's act, we look at it like that, but God was also giving us an opportunity to succeed and he is still, right? It's like, oh, well, why would he let me fail? Well, he's also letting you succeed. Yeah. Because when you do succeed, when you do choose Jesus and you say no to these other things, what that does for a relationship, what, what that does for a spouse, right, to, to choose you in the midst of all these other options, that, that really means something. And that's what I've been able to kind of settle with. Or Troy, what about just your kids, man? Like, yeah, I don't know about you, but you guys, but that was one of the things that was really kind of scary about having kids was you're, you're like, man, I... I love my wife so much, and, and in this relationship, we want to bring forth, you know, children, and God blesses you with children, and then you have this terrifying idea. You're like, man, I love them so much that they might not choose to love me. Like, exactly. that's the risk of love. That is absolutely it. And we see, from our standpoint, God is a risk-taking God. To him, he's just being God. He is just being loving. And he's giving us the choice and the opportunity. And so he allows it because even through your evil, there is the opportunity of repentance. See, that for me as a Christian, this is the solace that I had was, yeah. was looking at God saying, okay, the, the only thing that I can do here is I'm going to choose to love. I'm going to choose yeah. to love my children, even if they choose not to love me. Yeah. That that's my commitment, and God teach me teach me how to be like you in this regard. Mm -hmm. Well, not the Isaiah fifty five eight, right? For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares Yahweh. Yahweh. Um, and that's you know, God being God, maybe He knows something that we don't, and so certain things are going to happen in this world that we have as finite beings a finite knowledge and understanding of, and that doesn't downplay the fact that people experience real hurt and and. Uh, when you're in the midst of it, the maybe somewhat more tidy theological or philosophical answer is not what you want to hear. Um, and there's a person there, but I think there's also an aspect of allowing God to be God and understanding that he is the just judge who we have an example of his character being good and being, being right. Yeah. That that really helps us move into the our second question, unless you guys had something else you wanted to say there. As we're looking at the destiny of the un unevangelized, the, this this same statement, like you just said, Wes could come up. Okay, God must have something up. Uh, he he must know something better than I do. But we definitely have a hard time wrestling with that. So reading the second portion of, of, of what they said. And again, to respect to the person who wrote this, we understand that you sent in three questions, but these kind of flow in together nicely. So we're going to approach it as one big question. Another topic we discussed was the sharing of the word of God and how that affects recipients of the good news. From what I could piece together, people who hear about the word of God and reject him go to hell as they should. But uncontacted people never knew of his existence and therefore could not possibly have accepted him before their death are granted access to heaven because they never knew. If this happens to be the case, 
Would the most moral action be to never speak of God again to ensure nobody has the opportunity to hear and reject his teachings? Lastly, we assume God created hell because he created everything. Would hell not be the ultimate form of unjust punishment? Human life is finite. There is at most a finite amount of sin one could possibly commit. Punishing a finite crime with infinite punishment is cruel and unjust. I see no way in which this is defensible. Go ahead, Wes. Yeah, I think there are a couple things going on there that the person may not realize that they're assuming. I think when we're talking about the, the second question, and it talks about unreached people groups, people who hear about the word of God and reject him go to hell. And then it, they make an interesting comment in the question, they say, as they should. So there's a, there's a granting that sin, or at least crime, should have a punishment. I mm-hmm. thought that was interesting to preface it like that. But then it says, but uncontacted people never knew his existence and therefore could not possibly have accepted him before their death are granted access to heaven because they knew, never knew. And that's an interesting statement because it almost assumes that you get to heaven because you believe in Jesus or you go to hell because you don't. And I don't think that's true. I think you go to hell because the wages of sin is death. And that's why it's not because you chose or didn't choose to accept Christ. You're either found in the first Adam or you're found in the second Adam, who is Christ. But that second Adam being found in him, being covered in the blood of Jesus, that's that's an act of mercy and grace. And so you're covered in that. And if you're not covered in that, then you get the just punishment that you deserve. I mean, this question was actually posited to me recently in the sense that someone said, well, I don't, I don't think it's fair that people are sent to hell. And to the person who I was interacting with, I said, oh, no, no, you don't want fair. Because if you got fair, your punishment would be to the full extent of the law. And to an infinite God, and that kind of plays into the third question, to an infinite God, that is an infinite crime. Mm-hmm. And that is an infinite punishment. And so we, you, you will get fairness, but you don't want that. <laughs> you want grace and mercy. And I'll just quickly define those words because we often confuse them. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. So if you commit a crime, you deserve the punishment for that crime. Mercy is not getting that punishment. Grace is related, but it's actually, it's unlike mercy, which is not getting what you do deserve. Grace is then getting what you don't deserve. And so if you are given mercy by God, that means you don't get the punishment of death and hell that you deserve. And if you're then given mercy, then that is being adopted as a a child of God, a son or daughter of God. You don't deserve that. Yeah, That is, that's like, as much icing as you could possibly put on top of that cake, because the cake is the mercy, not getting what you do deserve. You don't, you don't deserve to be let off of your crime. You certainly don't deserve to then become a child of God. But yet this God who loves us so much, you know, we often at my, my church, uh, during uh, COVID, we moved to doing communion every week and uh, we say uh, a corporate, uh, confession of prayer. And afterwards, the, the part that is said um, during the benediction is, you know, brothers and sisters, we are great sinners, but Christ is a greater savior. Mm. And I think that testifies to this is that your sin is probably more than you realize, but Christ's love and his ability to save you is even greater than that. Yeah. And so I think we need 
we need to keep that in mind. Why does someone go to hell? Well, they go to hell because God is just. So when the person says, you know, it isn't that punishment of hell, isn't that um, indefensible? Isn't that unjust? I would say, no, it is actually truly just. And it's justice to its full extent. And that's why our our fervor to preach the gospel needs to be, it, it needs to have a fire lit under us. It needs to have wind behind our sails because we are preaching to a dying world and they need to know what life is and, and Christ brings life abundantly. Um, I will say though, addressing specifically and head on just briefly that unreached people group, I would say a few things. I would say that the question assumes that God owes us something, that salvation is something we are owed. And I would say, just respectfully, that's that's not true. You aren't owed anything in terms of salvation. In fact, like I said before, what you're owed, your literal wages that Paul talks about, the it's like you're going to work and you're earning a salary and that salary is death and you're like pursuing it. That's kind of the illustration mm -hmm. is, you know, apart from Christ, your life is going to pursue that. It's going to pursue sin and hell and death 100% of the time. Yeah. And so to that, say, that unreached person, I would say a few things. I would say, you know, Romans 3.10, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks God. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a miracle that we, our hearts are turned from hearts of stone into hearts of flesh to seek God. Um, but also earlier in Paul's letter, he says this, for his, talking about God, invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made so that you are without excuse. And that phrase in the original language is unapologetus, without an apologetic, without an, a defense. Mm. So that what's being alluded to here is that when you stand before the throne of God, you can't say, well, I just didn't know. You know, I was on some un uninhabited island uh, with an um, uncontacted people group, and you just never gave me enough evidence. Mm. Paul says, no, we know in our hearts because we are cr created in God's image and because we see the creation around us that there is a creator. And so we're never going to be able to say to God, I just didn't know. I just, you didn't give me enough evidence. And related to that is that there's a component of the fact that, as Genesis 18.25 says, Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? So I think there's a component where we can say, you know, that unreached person, we need to reach them. <laughs> and we should feel a conviction that we, you know, preach the yeah. gospel, make disciples of all nations. But at the exact same time, God doesn't owe that person salvation. But boy, is it amazing that he wants that person to be brought into right relationship. And yeah. boy, is it amazing that he includes us in the process. He predestines not just the ends of salvation, but the means of calling his people to be part of that process, to be those, those workmanship, that workmanship, that tool that he accomplishes his will. And because, like we said before, we know the character of God, we know that we can leave certain aspects of salvation up to God and say, hey, I'm going to do my due diligence. I'm going to live out a life that exemplifies Christ. I'm going to go and make disciples of the nations, either locally or abroad. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow you in that. But ultimately, that God is going to do what is right, even in cases of people in remote parts of the world that have never heard of the good news of Jesus Christ. God is still accomplishing his will in all of that. 
So then leading into the, the, the second half of the question, we've established that God is just and he will make justly decisions about who goes where. Mm-hmm. But then come, brings in the question of, we assume God created hell because he created, created everything. And their challenge with that then was, why is it that there is an infinite punishment for a finite act? Yeah. Yeah, I would say two things. I would say uh, w- there's nothing in scripture that says we stop sinning after we're dead. Um, if if you mm-hmm. are a soul that's depraved, uh, you, I've seen no reason why you wouldn't just continually rebel against God mm. uh, because that's, that's in your nature. If you haven't been made into a new creation and are being sanctified, a sanctification that will come at the final day of glorification, if you haven't started that process of God working in your heart and being indwelled by the Spirit, uh, why would you stop sinning? So if you're still sinning, then you still are meriting a punishment. And also, you're sinning against an infinite God. And so even though we might perceive our sin here on earth as finite, the sin is against a being who is infinite. And so it's an infinite crime because it's an ultimate act of cosmic rebellion against a holy God. Yeah, thanks, Wes. Man, there's so many things to talk about with this one. We should bat around a few things here. The The first thing, though, that I, I just wanted to bring up was to highlight, you know, this important idea that ties in with what we talked about at the beginning. If we if we really believe that God's all-powerful, He's all-wise and all-good, like, do you really believe that? Do you really trust that? Because if you do, then it means, hey, I, I don't know what's going to happen in every given situation with what's going on around the world. But I do know that I can trust God that he's going to judge the hearts of all people, including me, justly. And, and I've got I've to trust that. And to, to me, I think this is where Jesus is so significant. Because you're like, well, what's God like then? Is God good? And he's like, well, look at Jesus. You want to know what God's like? Do you want to know the depths that he's gone to save you? And as Jesus you know, says, and we see this throughout the Bible, God's desire is to to love and to see people restored, to see everyone saved sort of idea. Yeah. Uh, here's the challenge, though. So God loves you deeply, but do you love God? And I got to tell you, like, this is the part of working with Apologetics Canada that has really challenged me. I have just met so many people who do not love God. And it's mm. not that God is sending them to hell. They're, they're sending themselves. I mean, in some ways, you could say that God bringing them into heaven would be their own hell. They don't want God. And I do agree with C.S. Lewis in his book, the, the Great Divorce. I do agree with him that hell is locked from the inside. And then at the end of the day, either God's going to say to you, thy will be done, or you will say to God, thy will be done. Mm-hmm. That's, that's heavy stuff. It really is. And it's something to to really think about because, you know, when I was going over just this this last portion of this this question, one of the things that stood out to me the most is I think with this loving God, it's like, do we actually believe, do we like, do we really believe that when he died on the cross, he didn't have the unreached people in mind? Like, could we, is that the God that we think he is? That when he died on the cross, it was for those that were just with, with arm's reach? 
Well, it's not. You, I mean, you look at Luke 7 in, I believe it's in Luke 17, where he's, it's his, his prayer before he's betrayed. And in that prayer, he says, I'm not just preaching for those that are here now, but for those that may come after. You know, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that essentially you give them the strength to stand in this, in this world. He was, Jesus was fully aware of what he's, yeah, John 17. Thank you. And Jesus was fully aware of who he had in mind. And you see this sometimes with the wrestle he had with the disciples was we were just so closed minded and very, we can be very tunnel vision and we put God into this tunnel vision. And I, and I will say that much of the entertainment world that we that that we we see and and the way God is portrayed, it is as if God can be persuaded by people because people know it differently. You're out of touch, God, right? Like whether it's a movie where they're trying to portray God with Moses and Christian Bale, or it's just a superhero who then gets duped by the heroes of the earth. It's that's not the God we serve. He has those that. He is not out of touch. He has not removed himself because of wicked people. He's still very active in it. And it's hard for us to, it's definitely hard for us to come to that understanding, but that's why he's God. And we need to let him be the bearer of that. Well, and related to that, Troy, God has always been a God of the underdog. I mean, Abraham was an underdog. The whole nation of Israel were the underdogs. I, mean, there, I think there was a reason. There's a reason. Yeah, there's a reason why God chose kind of a plucky little group rather than the superpowers of the day to represent himself, yeah. right? To be the city on the hill. It's It yeah. wasn't because they were strong and they were uh, steadfast and they, it was because they were broken. Yeah. It was because they were, they needed God's help. And God could have chosen Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, you know, the Hittites, mm -hmm. there were empires that, yeah. that took place, but that was not God's people. God mm -hmm. chose Jacob. He chose Israel. He chose Abraham. He chose Moses. And uh, I think that should be, that should be an encouragement to us that God continually both a chooses the underdog, you know, the, the, the plucky little runt of the litter, and then he sticks with them despite them continually rebelling and yep. falling into idol worship and 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 that th that should represent us right we can read mm -hmm. scripture and think you know israel is so stupid they're so <laughs> dumb <laughs> like you literally uh, just saw this the the red sea parted and you're like ah hey aaron you know it'd be a good idea if we start making idols you're like no <laughs> stop it don't but do we're that. hungry but, yeah we're but hungry. that's what we do right that's what we do and after we yeah, see god's we goodness do. we constantly we we need to ask less of you know why did they do what they do and ask how are we doing the exact same thing isn't it funny when you read the old testament that god every time he does something amazing is like hey quickly go like either write that down or make a memorial or something because i'm telling you it. you're gonna yeah. forget it yeah raise it on <laughs> yeah you know it's it's really yeah it's really funny you say that because when when you lose your train of thought and you have nothing to say. So that's so good. Go ahead, Andy or Wes. <laughs> yeah, nice. I'll, I'll, I'll take over. But that, was, that was good. Um, yeah. <laughs> one of the, the other things that reminded me uh, when, when both you guys were talking was that, uh, you know, one of the most quoted verses in the Bible of the Bible is a version of Exodus 34, 6, which is the whole, 
the Lord, the Lord, God most merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And a, a continual phrase through that, whether you see it in Nehemiah or the Psalms or Exodus or Joel, is that the English often often renders that one of those phrases in the Hebrew is compassionate. What I've always found interesting, although this isn't like an argument from maybe necessarily what the original language was communicating, but the way that we've understood how that works and using the word compassionate, because compassionate comes from two Latin words, calm meaning with and passion meaning suffering. Hmm. And that the God of the Bible, at least in the way we've chosen to understand that and render it in the language we speak in English, is that the God that we worship is not a distant and aloof God, like say the God of, you know, philosophical deism or theism. He's not a God that just creates and then lets the mechanisms of creation just go and occasionally goes, oh, maybe I should do something about that and pops in. Yeah. This is a God who experiences pain and suffering in the person of Jesus Christ, who literally steps, you know, into humanity when he doesn't need to do that because he's ruling and reigning on the throne of glory. Mm -hmm. And comes in as a baby in a stable and lives a, a pretty modest life and then operates on a pretty modest ministry and then gets betrayed and abandoned and murdered. <laughs> that's the God we worship. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can look at that and say, wow, that doesn't seem too impressive until you realize how truly impressive it is. Yeah. And that the God that we worship is compassionate in that he actually experiences a lot of the pain and suffering. And that can play into the first question of, you know, God is and has done something about the problem of evil because he stepped into it. Yeah. And, you know, Troy, you brought up the parable of the uh, prodigal son, which I think, you know, an important one that goes along with that, Wes, like Jesus will tell stories of Hey, again, you want to know what God's like? And he's saying, well, God, God's like this. And I, I love what Keller does with that. Keller obviously puts a spin on that with his book, Prodigal God. That that word prodigal means wasteful and yeah. is like extravagantly loving, right? Like you got this father who's like wasteful with his love, that he he loves his son and is welcoming his son home. And and I think that's just such a key idea to understand with all of this. Hell is not God's desire. Evil was never God's desire. God's mm -hmm. desire is for right relationship, is for goodness. Uh, God is good. But as God being good, God will give you over to, to what you want. God and, and with God being good, he will judge the evil of this world. I mean, I think this is something that that's hard for people to appreciate is if God is to remain good, he can't just be indifferent to the evil of the world. And, yeah. and the challenge, of course, with that is it puts us in in opposition to God. Mm -hmm. and, and now we, we've got to we've got to deal with that. Yeah. And of course, this is the beauty of the, the Christian faith is that we're not without hope that God stepped in, as you said, Wes, and in his son Jesus and has provided a way that we don't have to experience life forever without God. Yeah. So, I mean, ultimately, and I'll just, we can, you know, end with this, that hell is, is really, I, I would say kind of two things. On the one hand, it's, uh, it's separation from God. 
mm-hmm. uh, which is terrible in and of itself. I think it's one of the things reasons why Jesus talks so much about hell, because hell's a real reality that God really doesn't want you to experience. Yeah, and and Jesus is warning you that you don't want to be removed from God's presence. But more than that, and on top of that, is judgment. Jesus says, I have not come to judge the world. I've come to save the world. I'm coming to, to save you. And, I, and, I, and God, that's God's desire. But Jesus, Jesus is also saying there is a day coming yeah. where the evil of this world will be judged. Yeah. Yeah. I pray you are in, encouraged, um, whether you are the, the person who asked the question or you're someone who has been asking these questions because you are not the only one and you will not be the last. Um, but I pray, I I pray that this podcast will really have you looking more at who God is and, and who Jesus is in relation to all of the horrible things that are going on in this world, that he is really that much bigger. He really is that much greater. Sometimes we focus so much on the evil that we forget that there, there really is a God who, who really is holding it all together. And honestly, allowing these things to happen as we've discussed but the ultimate goal is is that people would know him that people would come into right relationship with him so thank you so much again for those of you that that send us in questions if you are someone who has questions about this podcast or about ones in the future something that we didn't address today we will definitely be doing this again in another way feel free to send us an email at info at apologeticscanada.com or when we're at an event feel free to say hello when we're at the a book table or a merch table feel free to, to come by and say hello we, we really appreciate um, those opportunities to interact with you but the ac podcast is a ministry of apologetics Canada. You can head to our website, www.apologeticscanada.com to see all the things we got coming up. Um, definitely look at our events page. Um, as we mentioned, we have the Leadership Summit coming up at the end of the month. We also have a conference going on in Ontario in November, which we're really excited about. There's a lot going on and we have lots of opportunities to connect with you. But tune in next week when we find more things to think about. But as always, love God, love people. Bye for now. Podcast. Podcast. Podcast.